The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 196 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. Thank you so much for listening again this week. We have such an amazing conversation coming up. But first off, I do want to thank a couple of new reviewers. Uh, thank you to the Apple Podcast listener names are Varlego and Kayak Now. Thank you so much for your five-star reviews and your kind words. We are actually up to 564 reviews as of the time of this recording, and that just really helps us to be found by people who are looking for great and uplifting content. Thank you for taking the time to do this. Uh, This week, my guest on the show, Greg Bretzing, Fasten Your Seatbelts. It is an amazing story. Greg was with the FBI for many years, and I was so impressed with how candid he was. He was involved in some really high-profile cases, and he shares quite a bit. Now, of course, as always, we never go into anything inappropriate, but being that he was with the FBI, there is some heavy content, and so there might be um, a little bit of discretion for younger listeners. But Greg is amazing. I actually went back, and as I edited this, I was riveted once again. His service in the FBI was just fascinating. And coming up this week in my Latter-day Life, where the sidewalk ends. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today here on the Latter-day Lives podcast, my guest has had a fascinating life in his career with the FBI, including being now a retired but special agent in charge of the Oregon State Office for the FBI, Greg Bretzing. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, as you can imagine, I mean, every young man, and I think most young women, grow up thinking about what it would be like to be in the FBI. We've all seen enough movies and everything else. I've got so many questions for you about your career and your life, but first, Let's get to know you, the person. Uh, tell us a little bit about where you're from and where you grew up. Boy, that's always been a difficult question for me to answer um, in that I grew up with a father who was in the FBI as well. And so he was transferred 13 times during his career, and I was around for nine of them. So we moved around quite a bit as a young man. I've lived from California to Virginia, Michigan, Buffalo, New York, and several other states in between. All right. So were you raised in the church? I was. Absolutely. And how many siblings do you have? I'm one of seven. I'm the third of seven. I have four sisters and two brothers. So your your parents are moving all around the country with this massive, massive troop. Oh, That's yeah. a big effort, and, right? Oh, man. My mom is a saint and um, a phenomenal woman. There's 18 years between the oldest and youngest of the seven. So that's a lot of child raising years. Yeah, that is a whole lot. Growing up with your dad as a, an FBI agent, um, how much was he allowed to talk about what his day-to-day work was? 
You know, I used to query him all the time. And so I think I developed my interview school uh, skills doing that. And he was very good, very good about not sharing anything um, uh, top secret, but he would tell some great stories. And those are the stories that, you know, stuck with me and really kind of took seed and, and led to me wanting to be an FBI agent from pretty much my high school years on. That was the goal. Did he have to travel a lot? Was he gone a lot for his job? He was gone a fair amount. And if you add to the fact that he was a bishop twice in the state presidency, seven kids, <laughs> and then he was the special agent in charge of the FBI in Buffalo, in New York City, and in Los Angeles. So he was a busy guy. That even puts more on my mom, as you can imagine, seven kids moving all around like that. Um, but he was involved in some really cool cases, too. That's why I had a chance to talk to him. We were in Detroit for the Jimmy Hoffa case. We were, when he was in uh, Washington, D.C., was the Spiro Agnew, you know, vice president case. So he had yes. some great stories. Yeah. That is incredible. Were you the envy of all your friends when, when you would tell, and, and, and even more importantly, did you ever use that to pick up girls? My dad is oh. a special agent <laughs> with the FBI. They, I used to, we had some great times. My friends sometimes were a little intimidated by my dad. He's, he is a super nice guy, but he's not. He's not one that's quick to smile. I smile a lot because that's my mom. And I got a lot of my mom in me too. But my dad was pretty, he, until you got to know him, he could be a tad intimidating. Yeah, I can only imagine along with the title. <laughs> How hard was it when you would get to a new area, uh, new ward, new school, new group of friends? Did you get excited about moving? Were you nervous or was it a combination? You know, that's a fantastic question. I've shared these stories with my kids because they, of course, had the opportunity to move a lot, too. Every time we got transferred, I'd feel a little sad, and it was always a little hard. And a um, little known secret about me, uh, my first three months of high school, I got suspended three times for fighting. And, yeah, that's wow. not something I wear. As a, I don't wear that as a badge <laughs> of honor. I never started the fight. But it was one of those things when you moved around, you got to a point where, you, you know, you, you could get pushed, you could get pushed. And then there came a time you just kind of had to draw a line. Now, the world has changed. We, you know, I definitely discouraged my kids and anybody they were hanging out with from doing that kind of activity. Yeah, but for me, uh, that it was back in the time when if you got in a fight yeah. right after it was done, you were best friends. You remember yeah. those days. So you get through high school. What came next? Oh, that was. Um, BYU. I graduated from high school and I wanted to go to BYU a semester before my mission and um, was had a chance to do that. And just one semester prior to mission, lived with my sister. And, uh, and then I uh, left on a mid-year mission to uh, Barcelona, Spain. Uh, how was Barcelona? It was amazing. I loved it. I served in areas like Pamplona and Mallorca. Uh, you know, finish up my mission in Barcelona and um, nothing but great, great memories and, and great experiences. Not, not the most highest baptizing mission by any means, but it was a phenomenal experience. Um, when you were serving in Barcelona, did you ever get to uh, proselyte in Las Ramblas? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, <laughs> um, and in fact, decades later, I took my wife and oldest daughter back to that area and we walked Las Ramblas and, and relived some old stories, met some old people that I had served with um, and served 
uh, uh, both who were members or who had joined um, while I was on my mission. And it was a phenomenal experience. They're still building that church, by the way, the Sagrada Familia. It's not yeah. finished yet. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. Uh, so, and Las Ramblas, for our, for our listeners who have not been, uh, Las Ramblas is just a long, long street with a whole bunch of shops and kind of a almost small park in the middle of it and, and just beautiful shops, incredible salty ham, and it leads you right down mm-hmm. to the water. And it's just a beautiful area. And if you ever go, hang on to your wallet while you walk, because it's also oh, known. It is known for the pickpockets right there. But I've been a few times. Gorgeous place. Um, how was your mission? It was great. I, ha- I served with phenomenal people. I had a wonderful mission president, great members. Um, as you described them as a beautiful people, they were, they were amazing members. Um, small in number. Um, when I was there, we didn't have any freestanding churches. They did build one while I was there in a little town called Edna in the, in the province of Alicante, which was the first freestanding chapel in Spain, um, mm. but, a, but a phenomenal place. So you come home from your mission. What, uh, where'd you go from there? Uh, went right back to BYU. Um, I had about five or six months where I worked at a lumber yard. Um, phenomenal man who um, means a lot to me and has throughout my life was a guy by the name of uh, Tom Mullen. And he and his family owned lumber yards up and down the uh, Southern California area. It's called Terry Lumber. And I was able to work there every summer and work my way through college, uh, being employed by, by a very uh, a convert to the church, a tennis player at Utah State, was converted by his beautiful wife and helped me and my brothers and many others uh, work their way through college. When you went to BYU, um, did, did you, were you still planning on going into the FBI? Was everything pointing in that direction? Oh, absolutely. In fact, the course of study I chose, accounting, was because at that time, the FBI was looking for lawyers, accountants, and former law enforcement. And I didn't want to go to law school. That's three more years. And <laughs> I did want to go to college. So I chose accounting, even though I really did not like that course of study at all. But uh, it was what was a means to an end. And so the goal was get in and it, it ended up working out well. And that's what I was going to ask is, is there generally, if you want to become an FBI agent, is there a course of study that's recommended or is it just what they're hiring at the time? Right now there is for sure. And, and they'll always be looking for people with a financial accountant background, because if it's not a crime of passion, so if it's not (laughs) something that you get upset about and, you know, do something, then it's all about the money. And so you follow the money and uh, it's important, important skill to have in the FBI, but, Computer scientists, uh, biologists, um, engineers, uh, former law enforcement, former military intelligence, languages are huge. Um, if you can speak, um, you can think from Spanish to Chinese to Russian, Italian, it'll make you more competitive. Well, that would make BYU pretty fertile ground for FBI oh, yeah. recruiting. Yes. Yeah, there was, uh, we used to joke around and, and, People would say, what, is the FBI half Mormon? And, and it's not. But there's a hefty percentage of, of Latter-day Saints who um, work in not just the FBI, but other 
branches of governments, military and and the like. Right. Um, we've heard that from other guests for sure. Um, so you end up, did you end up graduating with your degree in accounting then from BYU? I did. Yeah. And how was the BYU social experience for you? Well, it was successful in that I met my wonderful wife <laughs> in, in a, an accounting tax class that was just miserable for me, except for that. Um, as you can imagine, if you're, if, you know, BYU, they'll have those semicircle classrooms. And, you know, teared up and me and a good friend of mine who helped me through the program would sit in there and my wife sat in front of me one row and just a little over to the left. And so she would come in a little late, shimmy by me and sit down thinking, hmm, that's somebody I would really like to date. And (laughs) finally got my courage up, saw her in the library and the rest is history. So you end up graduating from BYU. Where did you go from there? Well, uh, interesting how plans go. You want to be an FBI agent, plan your whole course of study around that. And I was applying for the FBI as I was coming up to graduation, went through multiple interviews, medical, physicals, and then I get a letter in the mail basically advising me that the FBI had entered a hiring freeze and that hiring freeze ended up lasting for over two years. And so now what am I going to do? I fortunately, my wife, who is smarter than me, and um, (laughs) we were interviewing um, quickly, and she impressed a recruiter. And I'm not kidding when I say this, it, the the recruiter told me, you know, we probably would have hired you, but your wife was very impressive. And so we (laughs) both got hired for Ernst & Young, and went to work in San Jose, California. Um, And it ended up, being a great place where I could work, get some work experience, get my CPA, so that when the bureau started hiring in a couple of years, um, I was able to jump right back into the process. And I got called, I think, in October, and by um, the beginning of March, I was at the academy. That is amazing. Did you know where you were going to be, or did they just take you into the academy? They just take you into the academy. It's a four month plus. Um, time away and they train, you know, all the fun stuff they do. They do the shooting and the tactical, the search warrants, practical applications and that kind of thing. But they're also teaching you some interview skills and how to document things. At the end of the day, an FBI agent back then, it'd say use your pencil 99% of the time and your, you know, your weapon 1% if that. Um, it's, it's all about investigating and, and being able to, to relate with people so that you can draw information from them. And was that in Virginia? The FBI Academy is at Quantico, Virginia. It's yeah. a Marine base. How intimidating was it going into the Academy? Less intimidating, more just so exciting. So I had been raised, you know, by an FBI agent dad. I'd met many, many agents, both in the church, many in the church, and a few out of the church. So intimidated wasn't the right word. It was just excited. It mm. was, I could not believe that it was happening. Finally. I, yeah, I was living the dream literally at that point. So we've talked to a lot of our guests uh, who have been through experiences like the Academy. And inevitably, it comes up that often the Latter-day Saints somehow find each other and not at church. Somehow, just you look Latter-day Saint, you feel Latter-day Saint. Did that happen in the Academy? Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> there was uh, two others in my class of 50. Um, and then um, there was, because we've been 
two plus years of a hiring freeze, they were putting a lot of people through. So yeah, we found each other. Uh, not just, you know, the locker room sometimes was a big giveaway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, I, I would guess for multiple but, reasons, the jokes yes. and, and changing clothes, you probably right, was a giveaway. Exactly. <laughs> As you're working in and out of the gym and other applic- uh, you know, pool and other areas. Yeah, definitely. There was some, some dead giveaways there, but yeah, they, you could, you could definitely um, pick them out. That is so neat. So you get done with the Academy and did your wife move out to Virginia with you then, or did she stay in San Jose? No, she actually went um, to uh, spend time with her folks because we only had one mm. child at the time. We were just Lauren, not even a year old. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she did come out and visit uh, once and then came out for graduation. It was different. Of course, back then we didn't get on the planes as much going back and forth. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this was a your first month. You weren't even allowed to leave the academy. You're just stuck on base. And then... Um, I was able to go to church after that. Yeah. Uh, what a neat experience. So then once you graduate from the academy, do you put in for a job? Does the FBI assign you something? What's the process? It's uh, it's very, very scientific. There's a list from one to 56. There's 56 field offices in the FBI and you rate them one to 56. My number one choice to my 56th choice. And depending on, the needs of the bureau, that's always how they start. Number one is the needs of the bureau. Then some of your, you know, I, I spoke Spanish. I was an accountant and um, they had various awards in class kind of helped you in your, um, in your pursuit. So I ended up getting my number one pick, which was Phoenix, the Phoenix division. Um, so we were super thrilled about that for two weeks. And then I got a call saying, yeah, you're going to the Phoenix division, but we're going to send you to a small office out of that on the border of Mexico, Sierra Vista, Arizona. And um, initially my wife was in not happy. <laughs> I can remember driving into Sierra Vista, Arizona, and there's just tears coming down her face as we are basically the road ends there. Um, but it ended up being a wonderful experience. It was uh, five years of um, really both professionally, uh, in the church, um, good friends that we still have today, uh, in that, that first assignment in Arizona. So is that considered a border town then? Yeah. Sierra Vista. I mean, at night I could see the lights of the closest Mexican, uh, towns. Um, it's, it's pretty close. It's not, we didn't have a port of entry immediately directly South of us. So you'd have to go to Naco or Nogales for, uh, a real, border crossing but you know not everybody goes through the port of entry yes of course uh, yeah so did, <laughs> did you see that happening at, at the border oh yeah my my assignment in sierra vista was drugs and corruption and so we we worked a lot of uh, nights and a lot of different investigations where significant amounts of drugs were being moved mm. on a regular basis my first my first informant of any uh, notoriety um, led us to a 3,200-pound seizure of marijuana, and that was, um, you know, in a produce truck, and that, that's happening. That kind of stuff is happening all the time. I could tell you story after story about drug seizures and, and arrests. You know, you grow up seeing your father and his work. 
Do you remember a moment where you thought, now I am an FBI agent? Oh, yeah. I can remember several times, but the very first time I'd been on the job for less than a month, there had been a, I won't get into all the details of all the cases because it bore you to death, but there was a kidnapping in Albany, uh, New York, and uh, in a drug trafficking type of organization and, and, and situation, and it had been traced back to Sierra Vista, Arizona. Um, in doing these types of investigations, you trace it all down, and we'd identified the guy. He's referred to as the general. And we were trying to lure him from Mexico and the United States. And because in Sierra Vista, you have a big army base, Fort Huachuca, they wanted to use uh, undercover. I'm a month in. And I'm going, uh, they, you know, and they said, well, it's just a cameo role. I go, okay. Um, you know, I, I'm this clean cut Mormon looking kid. You know, we'll pass him <laughs> off as a military guy. And, um, we, it was arranged that we'd go up and exchange uh, money that we owed through this undercover that had happened for a sample of the drugs. And uh, the sign was, once that exchange had happened, I took my hat off and everybody came from out of the woodwork to take it down. And, and uh, at that time, I'm thinking to myself, I can remember my training agent looked at me after I said that. He goes, you know, you don't have to do this. I go, well. I've trained for this. I'm not, I'm not backing out now. <laughs> and, and it was just one of, um, again, if you have other law enforcement officers listening to this, they'll laugh and it's not all that dangerous. We plan these things out. We make sure we do it right. And we overwhelm them with numbers. But for the first time for a guy, it was a great, neat experience. Do you have uh, a most memorable case from your time in Sierra Vista? Oh, yeah. We worked a, a tunnel case that um, it was initiated based on a seizure of 5.6 tons of cocaine in a warehouse in Tucson. So that's a lot of 5.6 tons of cocaine. Tons of cocaine. And um, that was done in Tucson. I'm working in Sierra Vista. I have several things on on various phones in the area of people I'm investigating. It's called a trap and trace or a pen register where I'm not listening, but as telephone numbers are dialing in and out, I'm grabbing those numbers and, and then identifying who's calling. Well, it ends up at a telephone number found in that 5.6 ton warehouse was calling a guy I'm looking at in Douglas, Arizona. And we had this special operations division come in from Washington, D.C., and all the different agencies come together. And I can remember as I'm looking at this, again, this is 1996 now, this schematic on the board, and there's my number, and it's command and control number, you know, is right here. So I, I was made the case agent on that, and I won't go through all the details, but over a period of uh, three-plus years and many informants and uh, wiretaps and undercover operations. It ended up, we arrested over 50 people, found a tunnel connecting uh, Naco, Arizona to Naco, Mexico, that one day a month, every month, they'd bring one ton of cocaine through that tunnel. And it was you'd think that'd be easy to spot, but because it was so remote, we could never get anything in there. We tried everything, including 
the Corps of Engineers and setting them up uh, as a front company um, to try to find out where that tunnel was. And it ended up being an informant. Um, you know, that was the wife of one of the leaders of that organization on the other side of the border. Uh, it, 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 we seized millions of dollars, tons and tons of cocaine, automatic weapons, and various operations. And 10 years later, we were still wrapping up people that we'd find in Mexico. No kidding. And it was the and wife I, of one of the leaders was your off. informant. Yeah, that's, that's the, the tip of the iceberg on that case. But the day that I, I had another informant and one of the cardinal rules of informants is you never tell anybody you're an informant ever. You know, that's, that's not good for longevity's sake. And yeah, sure. yet this one informant told the bad guy's wife that she was an informant. And then she calls me up and says, Hey, she wants to talk to you. And we didn't have self. Well, I guess we had pagers. And um, so I get this page and I'm looking down, I call it back and we end up, I, I have to speak to that woman that night because I don't want her going back to her husband. I need to make sure she's on our side. And um, that was a whole different story, but we did make, make the arrangements. She is a very difficult informant to run, but at the end of the day, uh, it resulted in a successful case. Wow. This might seem like an odd question, but once seized, what does the government do with tons of cocaine? Well, they take a portion of it to keep for evidence, take lots and lots of pictures. And then once every few months, the DEA burns it all. They take it and just, there's a place they go and it all goes up in smoke. You have to stand way back from the smoke. I was going to say, uh, you can't stand right by it. <laughs> no. <laughs> you don't no. want to be the one lighting that fire. No, My goodness. No. So when you were in Sierra Vista, was there a time that you felt your life was in danger? No. There was a time, though, that I knew it was time to go. Mm. Because... Um, an individual who I'd arrested, they let out on bond and we were trying. I'm walking in one of the brand new mall at the time with my wife. And at that point, I think I had two kids and um, we crossed paths with this guy. And I thought, ah, oh, you know what? This is probably getting too small. I was yeah. there for five years and it so I never felt in danger. If you talk to my wife, she could probably give you some other um, a color on that because I know she was nervous those first years, particularly. I bet. I bet. And you've got children and you're the guy. You're the guy making these arrests and making these things happen. So you end up leaving Sierra Vista. Where'd you go from there? From there, I went because I knew it was time to go to Washington, D.C. and uh, was well, worked as a supervisor on money laundering unit, focused on drug-related money laundering, both in the Caribbean and in Southern California. Uh, I got the headquarters in September 2000, worked money laundering. It was, it was a lot of fun, doing undercover operations all over the place. You know, and this is big money, you know, big cartel money that we're chasing. It's a lot harder to get. I wish I could tell you stories of seizing hundreds of millions of dollars because that really hurts the organizations. They lose a few tons of cocaine here and there and they don't like it. But by the time they've got all that money, if you could seize that, you're really, really hurting them. 
Were you actually doing the undercover work yourself or were you running it? No, we were running it at that point. Yeah. And in fact, at headquarters, we were more making sure that it was being run according to, you know, our guidelines and in a safe manner um, so that everything was kosher in how the operations were happening. It's very important when you're working in a line of business like this, where you're dealing with um, informants, you know, to have a good informant, they're not Boy Scouts. They have to be involved in and associated with people who are doing shady things. And you have to make sure that while you're interacting with them, you keep to the guidelines. And, mm. you know, there's a, there's a separation. It's important that you maintain that. Same kind of thing as when you're doing these undercover operations. That makes sense. Let me say one thing. One yeah. thing, because it's it was a it's something we learned at the academy pretty much from day one. You know, in the FBI, we do a lot of things. You can make a lot of mistakes, and you're going to make mistakes, and we did make mistakes. But the one thing you could not do was lie. Period. Full stop. If you told a lie, you knew from day one that you would be fired. It was just going to happen that way. It's called the bright line policy back when Louis Free was the director. And in my house, when I'm raising my kids, we use that. We got a bright line here. You know, if I saw him approaching that, that zone, but in the FBI, it was a, it was a career changing event. You could do things and get in trouble, but you never lied. Um, and so we set up mechanisms to make sure that we kept everything within the lines. Mm. Was there a case during that time that that sticks out in your mind that you can talk about? One case there. Um, so out of the San Diego division with a major drug cartel on the other side, the Adriano Felix organization is what it was. Um, and uh, there was a group that was doing an undercover. We were approving it at headquarters with an informant that as I'm looking at this, and I'd worked with many, many informants, that's where I made my career in those early years was working with informants. I, I didn't get a good feeling about it. Something was amiss. And we headed out there and uh, dove in to what was happening in terms of that, you know, you have to be careful with informants. They can work all sides of the equation. And this informant was playing both sides of the table. And... Um, you know, giving us a little, giving the bad guys a little, and you can't do that very long. We shut down the operation. We um, disciplined some investigators. They weren't doing anything illegal. They were just getting played. And um, the wasn't a couple years later that that very informant was um, uh, was killed in, in Mexico. Um, you just can't play that game. It's a dangerous business, and. Uh, I just know when I was watching, looking at it, reading the, the investigation, seeing how the investigator was dealing, dealing with this informant, I knew something was up. And, and sure enough, yeah, we, wow. we got to the bottom of it. My goodness. Ugh. Look, the biggest thing that happened to headquarters was 9-11. Um, you know, I, I got to headquarters September 2000, September 2001, the whole world changed. Yeah. What and, was that like working for the FBI in Virginia well, during 9-11? Yeah. You're driving by a smoking Pentagon every day going to work. And I had actually, on an, um, reviewing an undercover operation in San Juan, Puerto Rico, flew out on September 10th 
2001 to Puerto Rico. And as we were going over the operation in Puerto Rico, I remember somebody sticking their head out of the supervisor's office and he said, you guys are all going to be working terrorism tomorrow. And we didn't even know what he was talking about. And we walked in in time to see the second plane hit. I couldn't get out of Puerto Rico for a few days. And by the time I got back, my entire unit had been moved from money laundering to terrorist financing. And over the course of many months, we traced all the finances, all the money that was used in those 9-11 attacks, who sent it, how it was sent. And um, one or two people were arrested. Other people were passed along to other agencies and were um, you know, dealt with outside of the purview of the FBI, but nonetheless, very effectively um, dealt with. And um, yeah, that was a crazy time. How do you do the job without getting emotional? Like, how do you not get emotionally fired up? I mean, you're, you know, this was an attack on our country and you're seeing that other side of it. Yeah. Yeah. You're first off, you're trained. So not that you live for these events because there are so many of them, but when something goes down, the guys I worked with, they want to be involved. Mm. They wanted to be doing something to address it, to combat it. And honestly, you know, I went back to work when I got back from San Juan and I didn't have a day off until Thanksgiving. And then it was six days a week until after Christmas. And eventually around March of 20, 2002, I remember thinking to myself, no one's going to tell you to stop working. So I dialed it back to five days a week. And even then it was just that, that whole time was a, was a whirlwind. It's a, it's a blur. I ended up in the middle East a couple of times. It was, it was amazing. So how long did you end up staying at headquarters? I was there for three and a half years. I left headquarters after Christmas in 2023 and drove to my next assignment, which was the Joint Terrorism Task Force leader in Salt Lake City, Utah. And that was um, 2000, 2003? 2004. January 2004, we drove into Utah. So you come into day. Salt Lake. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So you yeah, make, it, great. make it back to Utah, back to uh, close to where you had been with BYU. And then what was your, what was your job in Salt Lake? The first job was the supervisor of the Joint Terrorism Task Force, and our responsibilities were for Utah, Idaho, and Montana. And um, I did that job for about three and a half years, had great experiences, great agents, great interagency cooperation. Just briefly, the best case there was a uh, group of Iraqis who were conducting mortgage frauds back then, and then taking the proceeds and sending them back to the, um, to terrorist groups in, in the Middle East. My goodness. I, I think people think, well, what would there be to do? There's no terrorism in Utah and Idaho and the intermountain <laughs> West. Please tell me how wrong I am with that, uh, the, that assumption. Yeah. It's everywhere, yeah, right? Would, it, it's everywhere. And I can't get into all the details on this, but I will tell you that there were students that went through the universities in each of those states and in the state where I'm currently living in Oregon that were connected to 
terrorist organizations and bad actors. And um, yeah, there was just a whole line of investigations that occurs when that's going on. That is amazing. Um, what took you out of Salt Lake? Um, I was, we were there for eight years. So I did three years as a supervisor, five years as assistant special agent in charge over our criminal and then our national security divisions. But um, were you doing terrorism well, the whole time in Salt Lake? The first three years. And then I went over and became the assistant special agent in charge over all of our criminal programs. So then what took you out of Salt Lake? Well, while I was in Salt Lake, I did a five-month tour in Afghanistan as the on-scene commander for the FBI forces there. We had about 100 people in Afghanistan at that time doing all kinds of things, from uh, high-value target interviews to um, corruption investigations to a major crimes task force. We're also trying to teach um, some Afghan groups how to be police officers, how to investigate um, and then we had a suit, a set of guys that would go out with the Rangers on on objective and what would call a sensitive site exploitation where determining not only what evidence to take off the site, but who to bring with you, you know, for further interviews. It was a, it was an interesting time and I didn't do any of the offsite battle stuff. I was the, I was the commander of the FBI forces during that five month period. That is incredible. I mean, that is what a life experience after five months in Afghanistan, you get off a plane in the United States. Did that change your perception of our nation? Well, I have always loved the United States. I mean, you don't become an FBI agent for the money. And um, so I was a very, I was patriotic before I was raised in a patriotic family and one thing I did, I believe to this day, when we were there, the people I saw there, whether it was FBI, USAID, the State Department, the agency, everybody was there trying to make it better and trying to help people. It wasn't about riches or treasure. Mm. There was nothing in Afghanistan that was going to help that. So my impression of the United States in that regard, we're not a perfect country. We make a lot of mistakes. But we were there for idealistic reasons, the right reasons. Sometimes that can get you in trouble. But, um, and maybe I'm being idealistic now, but that's how I see it. And that's how I, the people who I was working with and associated with there, that's how they were addressing their jobs, their roles, their situations. That's beautiful. All right. So this finally takes you out of Salt Lake onto your next assignment. Where was that? Yeah, that was a brief stint back in Washington, D.C. in our inspection division. And that is kind of like a combination between internal affairs and um, like internal, uh, uh, you know, corporate consultants or business consultants. So you would go out and look at how a field office was being run. I'd take a team of agents and analysts and I would go to, say, Detroit and we would assess the field office see how the, what they were doing right, what they could improve upon, find some best practices to share across the Bureau, and um, maybe leave some recommendations for improvement. Yeah. How long did you do that? I did that for about 18 months. The 
other part of that job was we responded to all FBI agent involved shootings. So, um, mm. yeah. So I was, if you recall, and I don't know if people remember these things like I do, but there was a time when a child was kidnapped off a bus in Alabama, Dothan, Alabama, and held in a bunker for five days mm. and um, shot and killed the bus driver and took the little boy down there. Well, the FBI ended up intervening in that and our hostage rescue team got involved and through a series of events, we were able to breach the bunker, save the boy, but it ended up you know, in a shooting situation. And that was one of the um, uh, scenes I was called down to investigate. And we were there, I mean, immediately after the fact when nothing had been removed from the bunker. Mm. Um, and yeah, it, people, when it comes to, to an event where uh, shots are fired, those are very complex, you know, police officers and agents, agents particularly are, are trained extensively. And, um, and nonetheless, things, as soon as events are started in motion, you can't predict where they go. Right. And so we investigate to make sure one, that our agents are responding as appropriate and as they are trained. Um, and then I never found a, uh, when I was investigating, I did over 20 shootings and there was, um, I didn't find any instances where agents acted inappropriately. However, meaning they acted outside of our deadly force policy, but there were times when we found training opportunities to think, you know what, maybe we ask, maybe things got out of hand or escalated in a way that we could find ways to de-escalate mm. faster, better. You know, and those are big topics today. They're big topics. Today, right. And they've always been big topics to the FBI. Yeah. Mm. So after that 18 months, where, where did you go from there? And that's when I came out to Oregon and we live in Washington state. We live in Vancouver, Washington, but we, I was in charge of the FBI for the state of Oregon uh, best job in the FBI. And, um, uh, you know, I guess a lot of things happened during my tenure there. And I feel a little bad because as we talk about this, they, they're not happy events, right? When we get called in, you know, there was school yeah. shootings, a shooting at a community college. It was horrible. And then the Malheur takeover, you know, where the Bundys and their crew yeah. took over the wildlife refuge. That was 41 days of, I'll never get back. Um, Can you give us a quick kind of reminder? Again, we've got a lot of international listeners who right. may not be familiar with this case. Right. I'll, I'll caveat it by saying this, this could be hours long discussion on this mm -hmm. alone, but Ammon Bundy, his brother and his associates were people that were known to the FBI because of events that occurred two years prior in Nevada, where they got in an, 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 a standoff with the Bureau of Land Management. So by the time that they were coming to Oregon, we knew who they were. We had people in place that were reporting on their activities, and they were stirring up trouble for because of an individual who had been convicted of federal arson. And um, the sentencing had gone wrong. And so they were they were um, told to go back and resentence them, and they had to go back to jail, and that caused the Bundys to want to make a stand. 
And part of what the Bundys believe is the federal government should own no land, that all land uh, should be owned by the states or people. And in, in their efforts to rally forces to defense of these individuals, um, they led a group to take over what is the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. It's a fish and game uh, uh, location you know, kind of like a wildlife refuge. It's just where you go out and can walk and see birds. And But people are employed there and um, rangers and others. And they took it over in an armed fashion. They put, they blocked the roads. There's a hundred foot fire tower there. They put armed men with sniper rifles there. Mm. They took over the offices. And then similar to what they did in Bunkerville, Nevada, they start using social media to bring people in. And at one point they had, you know, close to a hundred people on a refuge. Wow. They were bringing food, supplies, ammunition. I got to back up and that when this happens, since we know who the Bundys are, I had already been talking with the state police, the sheriffs in those areas. I had known these, these men and women for years. And so we are preparing. We didn't know what might happen, but we had things set up. So in case it did, we could respond. And when they took over that refuge at being a federal piece of land, the FBI then became in charge of that operation. And I'm working with the state, the local police, the sheriffs, and we're trying to coordinate a response with all these different groups and interests. And um, one of the things we agreed on early is because of how it had gone down in Nevada, you know, where they, they use the federal government as a foil. They, um, we, we decided not to set up roadblocks, not to, uh, assault the refuge and, um, made sure we had informants inside. And then we became aware of when the leadership would be leaving that refuge. And we put some airplanes in the air. We followed the cars. We had a plan and we took them down in a remote area in the mountains in Oregon. And unfortunately, not everybody um, listened. Again, I could talk to you for hours on this. I've been through two trials and multiple civil suits on this. Uh, at the end, one individual was killed, LaVoy Fennecum. Uh, very sad. Uh, he did not listen and uh, was reaching for his weapon on multiple occasions. Um, mm. But by and large, a successful operation when you think that they held that refuge for 41 days and yeah. nobody else was killed or injured. It was uh, overall a successful operation. What a huge, huge undertaking. Were you able to take a day off during that entire time, like where you could actually enjoy yourself? No, no. Now, there was a few times um, where I was able to go and get my laundry done and get back. It's a six-hour drive between there and my house. Um, you but, were there just uh, nonstop. You were just there constantly through that whole thing. Right, right. Sean, it, we had hundreds of agents. We had two hostage rescue teams. We were, even though we didn't set up roadblocks, we wanted to make sure no one was going to be hurt. Mm. So we were surveilling, we were monitoring, we were negotiating, we had hostage negotiators there. And 
like I said, we could talk about this for hours, the intricacies of what was going on, how they were pushing to provoke us into a response and how we refused to be provoked. Um, and then, so when people talk about law enforcement and overreacting, we had made a decision early on. And I had the governor calling me two and a half weeks in, what are you going to do about this? How long, you know, because the, there's a lot of tension in the town as people are walking in the streets with, you know, their shouldered AR-15s through the stores, you know, driving up and down the streets with their trucks and their flags and their uh, military kit. It was a tense situation. Wow. I cannot imagine the pressure. This is on your shoulders. This is oh, you. Yeah. Did you have to do the briefings with the media? as well? I did. I did briefings with the media. I did briefings with the director of the FBI. I did briefings with the governor. I had congressional delegation calling about what was going on. They were usually pretty helpful. The congressional people were just saying, is there anything you need? And, you know, we avoid in these situations, uh, you know, politicizing it. It's not a political event. Um, but there was a, there's a significant amount of pressure. There's what's called the action imperative where you feel an imperative to do something, you know, to respond. And yet that's sometimes not the thing to do. Sometimes mm. the thing to do is to stay back and watch and wait for the right time that you can bring things together. And we did that and took out the entire leadership in one operation with one casualty, but, but literally decapitated the leadership Everybody else left that night and we were speaking. We had our negotiators speaking with people saying, leave now. And then, you know, four people stayed behind and that took a few more weeks to get rid of them. Greg, that is such an amazing time. How did you know when it was time to uh, retire from the FBI? Well, I had help with that. Um, you know, in the FBI, once you reach special agent in charge, the only other jobs that promote to are back in Washington, D.C. And I didn't want to go back a third time. My wife didn't want to go back a third time. Our three oldest children graduated in three different states. First one in Utah, second one in Virginia, third one out here in Washington. Um, and I had an opportunity to go to work for a good company, uh, you know, in Oregon and um, retire from the bureau and start a new career. And that's what we decided to do. Do you ever miss it? So um, I don't regret the decision at all. But as I'm talking to you from Washington, D.C., I have maintained my relationships, my contacts. I serve on the Domestic Security Advisory Council with the FBI. I'm on this um, Surface Transportation Security Advisory Council for TSA and uh, DHS. So I stay involved and um, anytime I travel overseas, I interact with our embassies and uh, make sure we stay in touch and, and, and share what needs to be shared. Um, so in that regard, I try to stay uh, attached while not being employed. What an incredible life. Greg, this has all just been so fascinating. And you say you could talk for 10 hours. I could, 
I could ask you questions for 10 hours because all <laughs> of put this, you to sleep. <laughs> no, all of this is just so fascinating, but we are about at that time. Uh, we're going to wrap things up with the question that we ask all of our guests. And that is, what does being a member of the church mean to you? Well, to me, as we talked about earlier, it's a, it's an anchor in my life. Uh, I have a, a testimony of Jesus Christ. I always have. My wife and I will talk about this, and um, I can't think of a time when I didn't believe in our Savior and um, and look to Him as a foundational, you know, aspect in my life. When we talk to our children, we talk about two things: we talk about loving unconditionally and living the gospel unapologetically. In the days we're in now, we need to be loving. We need to be sharing. There are other good people in many religions who are trying to live the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and um, share his light with others. Um, but we have a gospel and we can live that unapologetically and still love um, uh, our, our neighbors and, and those who aren't in our religion and those who are, who might disagree with us. Um, that's what it means to me. He is a husband, he is a father, he is a retired FBI agent who has lived a fascinating life and probably the most fascinating parts we can't hear about, and that's okay. <laughs> but uh, in any case, Greg Bretzing, thank you so much for sharing your Latter-day life with us. We appreciate it. Thanks for taking uh, the time and giving me the opportunity. And my special thanks to Greg Bretzing. He was amazing. I really could have just spent hours hearing his stories, and I'm sure there's so much he's not allowed to talk about, but I love what he did share. And Greg, just thank you so much for all your service for our nation, as well as for taking the time to come on the show. Uh, this week in my Latter-day life, uh, I've mentioned before that I've somewhat taken up running. And I say somewhat because I have dear friends who are true, true runners. Uh, I will give a shout out to Russ Gould and Steve Smith and John Dye and a lot of listeners to the show who really run and, and are amazing. Uh, but I do it trying to get into shape and I enjoy it. I can't go far and I can't go fast but I sure love doing it. And I was in San Diego all this past week working. I have uh, corporate housing there. We have a condo that I stay at when I'm down there. And usually I get in my car and drive somewhere to go walk or to go run. Uh, we're not too far from the beach, but we had early meetings this last week. So I decided to just get up early and head out straight from the condo. But the problem was I didn't really know the area uh, as far as like I hadn't really explored. And so I knelt down before I went out and ran, said my normal morning prayers. And as part of my prayer, I prayed that I would find a good place to run. I then took off out of the condo complex and went down the street and at that point was faced with either making a left or a right. And I just felt like maybe I should turn right. It seemed like there would be more down that way. And as I turned right, I got, I mean, really maybe 30, 40 yards and, and uh, there's kind of a turn and all of a sudden the sidewalk completely came to a stop and it was a pretty busy street and there wasn't much of a shoulder to it. And I didn't feel safe continuing on down that street. I came to a dead end. 
And so what did I do? I kind of shrugged my shoulders and turned around and ran back and ran the other way. And it was a pretty easy decision. There was nothing else to do. I couldn't go any further, so I turned and ran back. And I thought as I was running, I wonder why I decided to go right after I had prayed. And I know I have agency, uh, but why had I made that decision? I had prayed that I'd find a good place to run. And uh, sure enough, I had hit that dead end. So I turned around and was running, and suddenly I realized, you know, in life when this happens, uh, and it's happened to me multiple times, I have a tendency if I've prayed about something and feel good about making a decision, and then it turns out that decision doesn't have the outcome that I expected, I stew on it. It would have been like running if I had stood there just wondering, throwing my hands in the air, why am I here? Why did I turn right? Instead of just turning around and running back. And really in life, that's what we should be doing, is saying, what can we learn from this experience. We hit dead ends all the time. And yes, even when we've prayed about them, that doesn't mean it was the wrong decision. It means there's something we should learn from it. But I sure do struggle with that sometimes. But an interesting side note, uh, two mornings later, I went out for a run from there again. We had this event at at, uh, our company. And so I had to be in the office early every morning. So again, I left and I ran down the hill. And guess which way I did not turn? I did not turn right. I turned left and kept running. And you know what I realized is as long as I'm with this company and as long as we have this corporate housing, there will probably be many times that I will need to leave from there to go for a run if I want to work out in the morning. And I will never turn right again. I learned that lesson. But it was the only way to really learn that lesson. I guess I could have driven along or looked at a close uh, Google map, but it was a pretty simple lesson to learn. And I need to be better at that in my life, to learn that Heavenly Father is constantly trying to teach us. And sometimes we go down roads that have dead ends to learn what those dead ends are and to learn a better path and to learn where we should be going. And what a blessing that Heavenly Father loves us enough to allow us to make these decisions and to allow us to to have opportunities to learn. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoy the show, boy, our numbers are just going through the roof. It is amazing to me. If you know someone who would enjoy it, if you could share the show with them, uh, we would just really appreciate it. We have so many amazing guests and their uplifting stories. And if you think to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or any other place where you can leave a review, we surely appreciate those as well. The Latter-day Lives podcast is produced by Gene Chittister, social media by Skylar Fleming. I've been your host, Sean Rapier, and I think that's all we got for you this week. So until we meet again, there is a great, big, beautiful world out there. Go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>